John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 541.1S1718, certificate number 24553, government cheese. Don't make me say cheese. Oh, you done lined up for some cheese before. Oh, I done been in the line for some cheese. Oh, be in line all day. I'm going to tell you something about government cheese. I said it right, government cheese. Not government, government cheese. Government cheese make the best grilled cheese you'd have never had in your life. <laughs> oh, you can't eat a better grilled cheese than government cheese, but you got one problem. You got to cut it, though. Oh, this ain't no Velveeta. This ain't individually wrapped. You got to put some pressure on a butcher knife to cut some government cheese. I like how you put the N in government. I always just say government. Government cheese. Because if somebody says government, government. I, guess, I guess you say government. Go- government, like David Letterman used to. Uh-huh. Government Go- cheese. The government men are coming with their government cheese. You like cheese. Oh, man, everybody likes cheese. Well, not everybody. Are My you, son you, does not like cheese. That's right. I've eaten at your house where he was prepared a special plate sans cheese. I have a daughter who sans will not fromage. eat meat because right. she's a, a lovely, evolved, enlightened person. Hi, Caitlin. And I have a son who won't eat cheese because he's an awful little prima Ugh, donna. Dylan. The worst. Uh, how's the lactose intolerance in your uh, in your family? Uh, we are not intolerant about anything in our <laughs> North Seattle family, uh-huh. including lactose. lactose. Uh, I love dairy in all its forms. I've, I often have thought that I could become a vegetarian more easily than I could give up dairy. You know, there are a lot of there's a lot of sort of scoffing about lactose intolerance as a as a sort of modern problem, but lactose intolerance is a real it's real issue, and it's um and it's very different depending on sort of your um. Seventy something like seventy plus percent, seventy five percent of African Americans are lactose intolerant. Yeah, it's it's elevated in uh, I think in, I think in Native Asians. Americans and Asian Americans yeah. and Asian people too, right? La- complete. La- I mean, eighty percent lactose intolerance. Whereas in uh, in Caucasians, it's only twenty percent of the people. I don't know if this is true, but when I was growing up in Korea as one of the only white people around, I feel like I I was told that. Uh, Asians thought, and probably correctly, that white people just smelled like cheese. 
Hmm. Because they did not eat dairy. They were very Ugh. sensitive to the smell what of dairy. What a terrible thing to say. Isn't that the, isn't you it, smell like cheese. Like you'll never think you're the you're the great white hope or the master race anymore if you realize you're the race that smells like cheese. I really feel like that is maybe the biggest dog uh like put down you could say to somebody. And I'm gonna start <laughs> I'm gonna start saying it to people that are mean to me. I'm your mom like, smells like cheese. You, you know what? Eat snakes. You smell like cheese. <laughs> is eat snakes your go to insult? Eat snakes is a pretty good insult. Are you one of the Bowery boys? <laughs> I feel like, you know, I, I've been calling people ding dongs for a long time, and I watched that Zach Galifianakis movie uh, last night. Oh, is it funny? He, and he uses uh, he at one point he he starts talking about how he start he, he starts dropping ding dongs into his conversation, and I feel like although there are a million ways that Zach Galifianakis Zach Galifianakis could have come to ding dongs. Feel like it might be my little contribution. You to think the it world. could be you? Having said it, so not that he got it directly from me, but it you know it percolates out. I got it from Scott Danbaum uh, in Denton, Texas. So. I feel like alt comedy is very rich with that kind of uh, old timey insult. Yeah. Ding dong! But you know, a lot of alt comedy comes from me. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was going to say Patton Oswalt or Sarah Silverman, <laughs> but apparently it was you. So uh, you could switch to like yo 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 yo. There's yeah, other yo-yos. options. No, I'm going to start saying you smell like cheese. Eat snakes. It's not an adjective. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, a noun. You could say cheese smell. Cheese. 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 Cheese people. Cheese head. Cheeser. Wait, that's a. No, don't cheese Packers heads. fan. Don't get that. Don't get us started. Um, growing up, I'm guessing that you ate all the processed American cheeses that you could. Oh boy. So my, um, my parents were both of the same kind of better home and better homes and gardens, better living through chemistry generation. Right. So we ate a lot of jello. We ate a lot of uh, weird salads on lettuce leaves. We ate a lot of casseroles. It's your it's your it's cultural birth, patrimony. It's my birthright as a <laughs> white suburban kid. And one of those things was just slices of craft uh, singles. My mom would uh, use Velveeta unironically for nachos. You, did you know that craft singles, um, although it's described as a sliced cheese, is not sliced? They they pour them in molds. Yeah, craft singles are made as. It's individual slices. I guess of, that's why they're called singles. Yeah, but they're not slices. And I, there's no other way to describe them except as. Yeah, what would you call it? Squares. Call, yeah, squares. Right. They're squares. <laughs> they're but they're not. Uh, they're not slices. How, from do you know how it works? Does does liquid slur, does slurry pour into a square pan? <laughs> yeah, I guess they probably a very shallow. They probably pan? have a tiny little conveyor belt that just has cheese. You know, uh, cheese shaped little slices. When you think about it. Well, wait. Yeah, the 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 singles actually show the imprint of the plastic wrap that they contains do. them. You can see the the mylar envelope. So either so they must they must still be somewhat damp when they are wrapped. <laughs> I uh I feel like the commercial implies there's a big block of craft mm-hmm. singles, craft uh, uh, not singles, craft craft uh, block block together and then it gets sliced. Yeah, unfortunately but, no. Hmm. Or all uh, or Maybe a better way of saying that is, fortunately, no, because each individually hermetically sealed wrap of cheese is its own unique product. It's important to note that I should not be sneering at my parents for coming from a generation where that was that was just middle-class food. You well, know, like today, everybody is a food snob where you would say, oh, no, no, I eat manchego cheese mm-hmm. from central Spain on my uh, on my." tuna melt or whatever mm-hmm. uh be- <laughs> you imagine a manchego tuna melt that did not exist Gross. like there were maybe four cities in the world where there were more than five different cheeses well 
it's funny that you mention it because mocking processed cheese is, a, I think, not only a time-honored American tradition, but it is something that characterizes uh, the last 40 years in American culture. Like, as great as processed cheese is, it is also it also became symbolic with a lot of things. Industrial food, it became uh, like a symbolism of American lack of taste, uh, and it became a symbolism of poverty or of, um, you know, being, being unable to not just appreciate, but afford better food. I assume the poverty vector is something we're going to, the history of that is what we're going to discuss today. Because when I've heard about government cheese, it's definitely in that context. That's it's, right. it's a stand-up comedian talking about their kind of inner city upbringing or whatever. And uh, it's a real signifier of that. Yeah. Government cheese became a, um, became a stand-in for all sort of assistance, you know, government assistance, welfare, food stamps, food bank. Post-Great Society kind of welfare apparatus in America. That's right. And, and so it has a lot of, um, it has tremendous social connotations in the U.S., but also in a, in, a, in a larger sweep, processed cheese of all kinds are kind of, they became a demarcator of class. And maybe the, nationality. Yes. I feel like America is still made fun of today for having our kind of just just as our chocolate is kind of gross and waxy and overprocessed. Like we don't know what good cheese is in well, this country, and, right? And processed cheese eventually became American cheese, and we call it American cheese <laughs> with pride uh, <laughs> because although although processed cheese was not invented in America, it, uh, it originally was a product of Switzerland. Interesting. Uh, if you can believe it. A country that has many great cheeses. Wonderful cheeses. A man but by they the were like, of, they should, there should be fewer holes in this. Well, you know, there are a lot of problems with cheese, right? It's expensive to uh, to produce, time-consuming. It it spoils mm-hmm. readily. It is... Um, You're really down on cheese. Well, pff, listen, if I could eliminate cheese from my diet... I like I would, how you already I'd, have a list of grudges with cheese. I'd be 40 pounds lighter. Are you lactose intolerant? I'd be able to fly... Uh, well, I have, no, I'm not, but, but, uh, but I think at the level of cheese that I consume, you're just not meant to eat that much cheese. I was at a baseball game last night and I uh, got a cookie with a scoop of ice cream cheese? on it. Oh, I thought you were going to say Cookie it. with a scoop of cheese. <laughs> I had an apple pie with a slice of cheddar got cheese. Got a hanker for a hunker. <laughs> and it said with a scoop. And so I got it with a scoop and I had this ginormous thing of ice cream. And I tried to fob it off on the other people yes. I was with, but no, I, I mean, but I ended up eating too much ice cream mm-hmm. and I was feeling it for the rest of the night. It'll slow you right down. Uh, and I, it, I don't know if that's lactose intolerance or just, just awful gluttony, but I was not feeling like a healthy man. Yeah. I, I, I cannot claim uh, to have lactose intolerance, but I remember when I first moved to Seattle and was first introduced to coffee really as a, as a, a thing, you know, my mom drank Sanka, I wasn't interested in coffee. It just seemed like some gross thing adults did. But when I moved to Seattle in my early 20s. We've replaced John's Folgers with actual <laughs> Starbucks coffee. Let's watch. I, I would go to the local cafe and, and, uh, and you know, some, somebody gave me a latte, right? Some friend that was like, you got to try this latte. And it was delicious. And like a lot of things in the early 90s, I thought, 
it was because it was sophisticated. It was probably good for me, <laughs> and so I started drinking. <laughs> does that ha- does that happen? Ooh, oh, cigarettes yeah, for sure. This looks cool. It must be healthy. Sure. I mean, that's how that's a lot of the choices I made were uh, in those early years were based on like, is this sophisticated? Well, it must improve me. Kids so can't I, drink coffee. Grownups do. Therefore, right. so I started drinking four pint glasses of latte a day, and I noticed I had an awful lot of expectorant by the end of the day. I was loaded up with, I had, you know, I'd consumed basically a gallon of whole milk. Uh, and it was only later that I realized, Hey, wait, I don't need all the milk. It doesn't have to be a latte. Once I was addicted to the coffee, it's the, you old, just want the hard stuff. Yeah, it's the Johnny Appleseed story, you know, come along, get you hooked on cider. And pretty soon you're, you're drinking a gallon of milk a day. Is that the Johnny Appleseed story? Uh, I, 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 I've, Kind of uh, the Disney cartoon confused me about what the Johnny Appleseed story really was about, but processed cheese. It there, it, it's it's uh, kind of self evident why process why, why making a cheese food that was shelf stable, easy to manufacture, melted evenly. Yeah, let me say the melting is huge. Yeah. I mean, if you go to if you get a McDonald's or a Burger King burger anywhere in the world. It will be made with smooth, evenly melting American cheese, and people love it. Nobody sneers at it and says, but this should be our uh, Roquefort. Right. <laughs> That's right. You, you, know? d- you definitely do not want nachos made with camembert, but you also don't want it made with just big chunks of of hard cheddar because right. it will separate into the oil and the and the kind of whey and the other, you know, the curds, it will separate into cheese. Doesn't bear thinking about too much solids. I don't want to know what's, I don't want to know what's in there. Whereas, whereas processed cheese has this even, this even melting, but also processed cheese, uh, in a country, the size of the United States where dairy production is, is focused in certain areas and you want to make food available to a, uh, the, a broad cross section of people, including people living in urban areas where there's not a big cheese manufacturing, you know, local local industry, processing cheese and making it into a commodity food, it has a lot of advantages. Even even not uh, even before you get into questions of cost, we talk a lot about foods that get worse when you have to ship them, like how produce is worse now and cheeses. There should be some food that gets better when you when it, in its. Uh in its modern Dr. Pepper truck ready form. I mean, the, the, yeah. the further the Dr. Pepper has to travel, the better it is. I have this problem at any Seattle restaurant of trying to order a Diet Coke or something and having them say like, oh, sure, we can make you one of our low sugar house <laughs> cola shrubs with balsamic vinegar. And mm-hmm. no, no. When I say I want a Diet Coke, don't say, yes, we have something different. Just say, no, we only have weird, right. weird sodas. We're going to make you a ginger beer and co- and call it a Diet uh, Dr. Pepper. There are definitely places that where if you order a ginger beer, they will just mix Coke and Sprite and tell you it's raining. Come on. And tell you it's raining ginger ale. Come on. And that is not how you make ginger ale. Bring me my processed American food. So that, I guess I, you're right. Soda is one food that does get better when it's standardized for, for the long haul. Yeah, well, and I mean, there's so much in American food processing that we we come to take for granted. I mean, you know if you go to McDonald's, you're going to get a McDonald's burger and you know that that has all of the – all of the uh, – the dangers and there's a lot of smugness around it, but all, all the preservatives that will keep it in your system for 20 years. But when you think about the many, 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 many different 
foods, including just the pasta you buy at the supermarket. I mean, it all is manufactured according to any more industrial scale and industrial uh, industrial manufacturing processes, right? There's nothing that's it's it's the rare thing like a Frito that where the ingredients <laughs> are things. corn, oil, salt. I I wouldn't. I only eat weird artisanal things that cost twenty dollars more than their uh, their mass market alternatives. Well, our uh, our if, like the innovation in America of processed cheese really does surprisingly start with James Kraft. Who there's a um, guy named Kraft with the K. I guess he's. He was. I guess we should know. It's the it's related to the Patriots guy. I assume. Yeah, all the Kraft with the K's are related. Kraft with a K. He he patented in America of uh, processed food or it processed like a, cheese. It food. sounds like a trade name. It's like Kleenex. It's a word related to the thing it is, Kraft. But, but with the C replaced with a K. Yeah, right. But, it's a Kraft cheese. But there was actually a guy. But it's Mr. Kraft, mm. right? And Mr. Kraft was, you know. If you have a name like that, you have to go into, you have to put your name on a building because it's so perfect for, <laughs> it's for, a great for corporate name, right? America at the time. <laughs> right. You, you have to wonder, you have to wonder what Roderick suggests I should do. I think it suggests. It's not futuristic. It's very old timey. Yeah, Roderick. You, it's just like, bespoke suits. You're a tailor or something. Right. Or I feel like, yeah, I feel like a or oof, British, British, British uh, race car from the thirties, maybe. Yeah. Okay. That's I, not I, bad. I drive the Roderick uh, model 20. No, even that doesn't. It sounds like a. It sounds like a car that would get beat in the, <laughs> by an Austin Healey. No, I, the I car feel, loses at Le Mans every year. I feel like a Roderick is just a small town city councilman who is on the take. It could be a raincoat. Oh yeah, put on your Roderick. Yeah, it often seems it could no. be a lowercase R, like uh, like in Brit- if some part of Britain that calls galoshes Rodericks, I would totally believe. Yeah, that's that. exactly right. I feel like a Jennings is a better car than a Roderick. Oh, I'm really? driving my new. The seven liter Jennings. Maybe it's just because your own name just sounds like, to you, your own name will never sound like anything but your name. Right. Like I have a hard time imagining Jennings as a trade name. I don't know. Jennings could be like a, maybe a, a caramel, like a Werther's, oh, yeah. a Werther's original kind of a thing. You know, Roderick is a very popular first name in the African-American community. So if you go looking for Rodericks, you'll find a lot of guys named like, you know, Roderick James or Roderick, you know, um, mm-hmm. Roderick Fred or whatever, like two first names type of thing. And do you feel like you're down because of that? No, I feel like it's, I, I don't, you know, there, there's already, there's a lot of confusion about like what the hell Roderick even is. Mm. Like where, what the, Der- the last king of the Visigoths was named Roderick. That's kind of my claim to fame. <laughs> um, so Kraft, um, Kraft started making processed cheese and uh, actually the Velveeta company uh, started up, started up right about this same time. No, it was a guy named Emil Frey. They're they're competitors. Uh, originally, although Kraft bought Velveeta in what the twenties. thing. So you take velvet because you want to convey its smooth that's exactly texture, right. and then you you have to you have to instead of adding a K, you have to change the E. Velveeta. Velveeta. Although in uh, in overseas territories, Velveeta was often marketed as Velveta. Oh, really? They took the second E out that's because just... in Germany it wouldn't have symbolized. Small velvet or whatever. That sounds a little too anatomical. Velveta. Like, uh, make sure to have your velveta examined once a year. Uh, actually, uh, processed cheese. So uh, Kraft bought Velveeta in the during the Depression, um, and in the 30s, processed cheese was regarded as not just a like a modern innovative innovative food, but it was thought of as a very healthy. Uh, part of an American diet and Velveeta was given the, it was the first 
food product given the American Medical Association seal of approval <laughs> really in the 1930s. The AMA has, like, the AMA has been waiting for, for the perfect health food and they finally see Velveeta. Yeah, here it is. Like, this is it. You make this sure is, you have Velveeta in uh, every day. This is what we'll be eating in our undersea cities and on Mars. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like all these uh, new foods that now we think of as kind of kitschy, like they were not just convenient, like they were thought of as as better because they were the future. Like a can of pineapple was a was a fancy, healthful treat to people who had it. not been able to eat pineapple Think up until then. Think about the first time you saw a can of pineapple. And now, of course, you know, it just seems, you know, like a it's a generation ago that you would right. crack a can of pineapple as an ingredient in something and well, put it on a ham. No, you, you, you drop it in your in your jello. That's right. And you melt some Velveeta over it. Put it in my cottage cheese and put it on a lettuce leaf and you got yourself a salad going. This entry in the omnibus has been brought to you by Keeps. Do you think about your hair a lot, John? Do you think about keeping your hair? I do. I do. You know, as a <clears throat> as a man now in his 50s wow. who has not really lost his hair. You're looking good. I got a, I got a bunch of hair, but I do have um it is receding. And it's not it's not dramatically receding, but I do start to I'm noticing at the temples a little bit of well this the temples seem to keep going Going back a little bit more. I had these little alleys in my 20s. Yeah, I did too. But I'm getting thinner on top now. And this terrifies me. I wasn't going to say anything. Do you know, you've noticed because you're a little taller well, than me. Well, I'm a little taller than you. I look down on your <laughs> You look down on me in so many ways. No. It's, uh... Well, you and I often walk into a room like Simon and Garfunkel on the cover <laughs> of Bridge Over Turbo Water. <laughs> Why are we wearing black turtlenecks? <laughs> I think about baldness a lot because I'm convinced... Well, first of all, my mom's dad lost his hair young. So I kind of feel like there's right. some genetic component. Right. And that's uh, traditionally what they say, right? That you get it through your mom's side. I have no idea if it's true, yeah. but that is what they say. But whether that's true or not, I just know that I would not look good bald. You don't think? No, I'm all, I'm all kind of the same pinkish color anyway. I don't yeah. have, I don't have prominent eyebrows like Patrick Stewart. I'm not going to be some strong, sexy Sean Connery. <sighs> that's type. the problem. It's the eyebrow problem again. It, it really is. Like you and I are going to, you know, we're, we're, blonde, sandy-colored men who will be blonde, sandy-colored bald men. It's so lame. If you had Zorba the Greek eyebrows, I would say shave it. You can't even, yeah, you can't even take the bull by the horns and shave it. It's not just us. Two out of three men experience male pattern baldness before 35. See, now this is the kind of ad that I was hoping to do for Omnibus, not those old ads that we used to do, but ads where people really, where we're really helping people. Really helping sad, balding people. So two out of three American men are are experiencing baldness and what can be done about it. It seems like it's it, there's so many products. It seems so complicated to me. Uh, that's what I liked about the, I like the simplicity of keeps. Um, there's, there's no more having to like fill a prescription, go to a pharmacy because you keeps will give you an online consultation with a doctor and then the medication for your treatment just arrives at your home. So keeps isn't a product as much as it is a, uh, it's a, it's a consultation service. They put together the the suite of products that will work best for you. Yeah, it's it's all of the above. You oh. get the doctor attention, and then you get the drugs delivered discreetly to your home without doing that thing that everyone hates to do today. Go outside. Right, sure. Go to the store and stand at the pharmacist and go, look at my male pattern baldness. Let me lean my head over toward you. This is the saddest part of me. Uh, the stuff works. It's 90% effective. It's got five-star reviews from 
you know, more users than any other product. Really? Yes. Over almost 100,000 Happy Keeps customers love the hair loss prevention stuff they provide. So do you feel like hair loss prevention is a road you're going to go down? I mean, I don't want to see you get more sandy and pink. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be more sandy and pink either. No, I feel like I'm kind of, I'm going to do the kind of preventative thing and see if I can stop it from getting any thinner. Use a product that will. Fingers crossed. Interdict the the passage of time. And if I'm speaking to others who are interested in interdiction, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you are. Uh, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, uh, what you want to do is go to keeps.com slash omnibus. And if you use that offer, you'll receive your first month of treatment. Wait for it for free. Whoa. How can you lose? That's keeps K E E P S dot com slash omnibus. The thing about processed cheese is that it lends itself, um, very well to being treated as something other than just a food because what else is it? it's a floor wax well <laughs> it is uh within the within the united states and this is true all over the world uh when governments get involved in managing markets and in in particular managing food production and distribution uh food begins to be thought of as a commodity. And we've talked about this in the onion futures episode recently, mm-hmm. but you know, a government as it administers a, a larger territory and population has an obligation to even, even within a, it, like a completely market economy, the government has an obligation to not let surpluses of food build up in one part of the territory. And while, Somewhere else in the territory, there is um, tremendous need, right? I mean, a government, even even though you're, you're going to get letters from libertarians, I know. Even though no, the market <laughs> should take care of that. Even though we're not uh, we're not in a socialist economy here in the United States, there is a lot of government intervention in markets and in production and distribution because it, it's just. It's just a really bad look to have a bunch of rich, rich farmers sitting on mountains of cheese and a bunch of poor workers starving. To and death. is this related to is this related to social welfare, or is it? Or are there actually? Do we think there's efficiencies where you know we just need to smooth out? You know, eventually capitalism would solve the problem of too many people making the wrong cheese, but uh, it's more efficient if if government can catch it quicker. Well, or? so um, so so both things. There is a welfare component, but there's also a um, there's also a, a kind of within within a food market from season to season, um, supply can change radically, right? I mean, you can have a bad harvest and all of a sudden there's so no food. You see it today, like the price of something will go up two dollars and you'll realize California doesn't have enough avocados this year or whatever. So there's a lot. Of, so within the political realm, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of impetus for politicians to try and guarantee. Uh, sort of some price stability over time from season to season. It's part of the, it's part of modern industrialization of food manufacture, but also it's true for oil and other commodities. You don't want, um, for instance, just recently the attack on the Saudi oil mm-hmm. refinery. You don't want that to create a scenario where suddenly the price of gas goes from $3 a gallon to $30 a gallon. So you can protect against shortage by using 
stockpiling. Yeah. Price supports work a couple of different ways. There are there are subsidies for uh, for producers to try and you know make it worth their while to make um, to to produce the, the you're, commodities you're that we need. You're incentivizing the production of something that's that's that, of which there are shortages, uh, or where, or where there's not necessarily a profitable market for it at the moment, right? I mean, you see. You see this in mining all the time. The price of copper will fall below a certain threshold, and they'll just shut down the copper mines because they're not profitable. It's not profitable to mine copper. And the argument for keeping it going is, is it just a form of welfare for the for the workers, for the employees, to, to keep the industry alive? Or is it like, actually, we can't have this kind of stop and starting. Uh, the need for copper is going to come back, and we want that supply chain to be intact. Within, within uh, agriculture, it's definitely a form of welfare that's what I was thinking. Yeah, in uh, welfare for the producer. I feel like it's an underappreciated kind of welfare because usually tirades about welfare target a certain kind of welfare recipient who is not a white Nebraska farmer. Well, and that happened. Uh, that happened in, in uh, later on in our government cheese story. The other side of it is price controls, and the government imposes. This is another form of price support. Government imposes price controls on commodities in order to keep. Uh, to keep sort of the, the uh, to protect the consumer from wild fluctuations in price, so you get this kind of you try and create a, a like a perfect symbiosis between the government, su- you know, giving support in the form of subsidies to producers while also protecting consumers with from getting gouged, right? And so you're just kind of sanding off the. But it's an incredibly inefficient system, and your libertarian friends are going to say, like, let the market decide. But what the market ends up producing sometimes is famine, and also like <laughs> <laughs> we're speaking to libertarian <laughs> coral reefs who uh, are very annoyed that you think any kind of central planning is going to help here, John. But during World War II, um, it was sort of a, 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 one of the first instances where we saw within the, the country, because, uh, partly because there was rationing happening, but also the way that uh, the FDR and the, um, the New Deal had worked out arrangements with farmers and producers. And we talked about this a long time ago on the show uh, in the Water Wars episode. Right. Where uh, the government is engaged in in setting or depressing or inflating the price of something well outside what the market necessarily would bear, and then protecting those interests in the form of legislation, so guaranteeing farmers uh, will you know that will never make less than this, or in in, in the case of the dairy industry. Uh, the government often will just buy up herds of dairy cows um, to take those cows out of production because we have too much cheese. Is this just pure pork for constituents, or is there some is there some idea that like would economists defend this as a way of stabilizing a chaotic market? Or I think I think most economists would agree that it's not a very efficient way mm-hmm. of, uh, of of stabilizing supply and demand. Um, it often ends up being used in a in political football in a in a thing uh, that's a process that's described as log rolling, where the 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 Democrats will want food subsidies for poor people, and the Republicans will say what 
you know, will then sort of extract concessions for their farming. Corn. Their, yeah. Their farmer constituencies, yeah. um, where they're, they, the farmers are subsidized in part by a government guarantee that they will buy this food on behalf of the poor. I mean, it's, it's, ex- it's, it's so interconnected that pretty much every bill of this kind will have both things now. Right. And it'll, if you want your food stamps, you're going to have to have your, your corns, your ethanol yeah. subsidies. Sorry. And, 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 and what's crazy is that the United States is a 100% of a welfare state. And a, I mean, every single person, all the rich people that are like, I built this. It's like, well, actually, when you take no, the they, government subsidies out, the benefits you receive are no longer controversial <laughs> benefits like social security. That's not a handout. No, I had that coming, but other people's benefits, those are the iffy ones. Yeah, Social security. I paid into it during world war two. There was an attempt to create, well, it was the, it was the origin of the, the food stamp. And the idea of the food stamp was that if you, uh, you would buy food stamps. They weren't just given to you. You purchased them. But if you purchased a certain number of food stamps, you would get other food stamps for what were regarded as surplus commodities. So food was Is this part of ration this is part of wartime rationing? Yeah. Okay. And, but food was being harvested places and there was too there were too many corn cobs or too many uh Ritz crackers in one part of the country. And in order to to distribute that among a population that was already suffering from food shortages, mm-hmm. this sort of uh, the food stamp program incentivized people to eat these certain foods. You don't want salt cod. You don't have recipes for salt cod, but we've got too much salt. We've cod, got too so. much salt cod. So here's some cheap. Here's an opportunity. If you buy, if you buy food stamps for food you want, you get cheap op, cheap mm-hmm. uh, access to this other food. It's a bonus food. Bonus. And it worked through the war, and then it um, at the end of the war, we dealt with the surpluses, and the program kind of wrapped up. But during the Kennedy years, I mean, food subsidies were debated throughout the fifties as a you know this was an era when we were there. Well, there was had been a dramatic urbanization in in the manufacturing corridors of the West. I mean, we or of the the Midwest and West. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, all Detroit had become a huge city and Los Angeles. And so we had urban poor in a way that was different from the traditional urban kind poor. Kind of the immigrant tenements of, of past decades. Right. They, these, were, these were people that had worked in the wartime factories and, um, or had just migrated to the cities. And so they were, it wasn't the, – there was a disconnect between the rural food production and – people living in, in cities. And by the Kennedy administration, this evolution of what had, what became sort of the great society uh, of Johnson, we'd started to really, there was a lot of work going into the food stamp program, the uh, food banks, the welfare programs that we think of as characterizing that sixties American because this is something we can fix and can do kind of moonshot style. Right. Like there shouldn't be hungry people in the middle of these prosperous cities, just, you know, a few blocks from financial centers. Like we can fix this. That's right. And, and, um, and Johnson signed in, uh, let's see, uh, Johnson signed the Food Stamp Act in 1964, 
um, which was sort of part of his his overall sort of war on poverty that included Medicaid and Head Start and mm-hmm. Job Corps. You know, it was just like you say, like this. There's we're the best and the brightest, and there's no there's nothing that we can't solve with another layer of administration <laughs> and a promise yeah. uh, that we're gonna that we're gonna combat inequality. Um, so food stamps came back in in the '60s. There are two kinds, right? There's orange food stamps, which are food stamps that were for stuff that you wanted, and blue food stamps, which were stamps for f- stuff that was good for you. And if you if you bought enough orange ones, you got all these blue ones, and that was how you were. That's how food was subsidized. What What is an example of a bonus food in this scenario? Is it is it, is it junk salt food? cod? Salt cod. <laughs> no, you're not. Junk food isn't isn't supposed to be on the I see. on the list. The thing about milk and cheese and butter is that they are uh, they're stuff that is presumed to be a staple. I mean, it's it's stuff that that we think of everyone. Every needed. kitchen's got to have it, and yet it's a you know it's an industry, it's a marketplace, and if butter, if the price of butter starts to swing too widely, uh, it it creates it creates a state of uh, perceived food emergency. Now you can always cook with vegetable oil, margarine. Um, yeah, you don't need um, you don't need milk. You got parquet, but 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 especially then the idea that a you know that a, a child needed three glasses of milk a day in order to be healthy. I mean, there were there there was some mythology built built into the importance of cheese and milk. And I, the, wonder, I assume a lot of that mythology just starts out in uh, it, as an industry. Uh, marketing push right like well but uh, but we had we had such a uh, science less, science tells you your bones need calcium yeah, i guess that's right oh, so even if wisconsin is not trying to fool you into buying a lot of, you know filling your kids with milk you're going to sense that it's wholesome a much less sophisticated food science world where we couldn't process we couldn't uh, interpret all the vitamins and minerals that were in food we were just kind of looking at them and going well let's see if you give this kid milk he gets nice and fat and healthy and if you don't give him milk there were a lot of wrong guesses. Yeah. I mean, all the all the discourage fat but fill kids with sugar stuff that we had for about 20 years kind of backfired. Yeah, that wasn't so good. It turns out, in yeah. hindsight. In the early 70s, uh, as part of the, the global inflation, the gas crisis, the, uh, the, the economic topsy-turvy of the early 70s, there was an uh, incredible spike in the price of milk. Oh. Uh, milk went up 30% in the course of just a you know number of weeks. It's like the gas thing, but the cars are all lining up at the, <laughs> at the A&P. Like a gallon of milk is what? Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't have our milk. Uh, it was, it was a super. What were the causes? Do you know? Well, it was the, like, like the causes of, um, of all these kind of price fluctuations. There was, um, you know, the the price of gas made it more oh, difficult right. to, to deliver foods, stuff, and yeah. and um, and so the price of the the price of milk went up, and the government, in order in, in trying to respond to consumer panic, the government intervened and put price controls on the uh, on how much you could charge for milk and dairy, which affected farmers and their willingness to produce milk 
because now they were all crying poverty. It's cutting into their profits. Yeah, and claiming that it wasn't profitable to produce milk. And so during the 70s, during the Carter administration, the government stepped into the gap and said, well, we need to put price controls on milk, but we're also going to give you subsidies in the form of buying surplus milk and butter at this uh, price, this price floor, right? We're, we're going to set a minimum price mm-hmm. for your uh, your product. So you guarantee a sale of everything because you guarantee a Uncle sale. Sam wants your milk. At which point, the, the 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 price guarantee for that milk stuff, the milk milk products, was high enough that it incentivized dairy farmers to increase production. That increase in production did not increase prices because the government was buying the surplus and keeping a price control on what consumers paid. And dairy farmers increased production dramatically. Government Sure, just increase the size of the market. Because it's just like, hey man, you know, we're getting guaranteed uh income have, from this. I don't have to worry about selling all this. Yeah. And so the government got into the business of buying cheese, buying dairy product. And cheese and butter were ways that you could take milk, process it, and make it somewhat shelf-stable, storable, right? You couldn't just keep 30 million gallons of milk. Where does the government put all this stuff? Well, they, they were buying so much cheese, and so much cheese was being produced, that they had to build warehouses. Um, just for their new... Giant refrigerated warehouses stacked to the ceiling with pallets of five-pound blocks of processed cheese. And the processing, you know, was another factor that made the cheese Mm -hmm. shelf-stable. The addition of emulsifiers and other kind of orange food colorings and things that would keep the the cheese – that would would allow you to stack it in pallets. But – in a very short amount of time, the government had always maintained a certain kind of cheese stockpile. You never know. But by 1980, uh, we had 500 million pounds of cheese. Do you think this is the reason for the fondue fad? Some deep state attempt to get us to eat. The fondue, the fondue fad was a little earlier, right? And that was a first, yeah, late seventies. That that that's Carter. Too. I always you, thought it was like a sixties thing. Yeah, I thought oh, fondue yeah. was a sixties thing. Mm. Maybe, maybe your your parents got into it in the seventies. If they had just brought back fondue, maybe. Well, what they what they did, I mean, kind of like the the Nutria uh, attempts to control Nutria by making it a uh, a menu item yeah. in Southern kitchens. That didn't really work. There was no shortage of uh, of use for processed American cheese. It was just that this cheese was not making it to consumers. It was sitting in warehouses because there was too much of it, right? Yeah, like, and the and the the threat of releasing it to the public uh, would depress cheese prices even further. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was talk about an inefficient system. The government. You're working both ends, right? And and we and taxpayers were paying to buy this cheese in order to have us save money on cheese at the supermarket. Um, eventually, you're going to pay for the cheese one way or another. I feel like you got to pick a side. If you want to prop up the industry, <laughs> prop up the industry. But you can't like 
you know, you can't do both. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Well, in 1981, Ronald Reagan comes into office and he campaigned on the sort of you know, the original old school Republican talking points of we need to uh, streamline government. We need smaller, to. Smaller, less efficient government. Yeah. What are you talking Str- about? The cheese? Stroller, s- smaller, more efficient government. Sorry. What did I say? Less efficient? Yeah. That's a, I guess that's probably what it turned into. <laughs> it is what it turned into. <laughs> but, you know, the Reagan got elected in the hangover of the Johnson and Carter uh, welfare state years. And his he made a big appeal to the um the american middle saying we're spending too much money and there are a bunch of freeloaders and everybody out there is getting all this free welfare and we're going to cut out the waste he used surprisingly not coded coded references yeah. to who would be getting this thing welfare moms mm-hmm. and I, I believe there's tape of him saying like does he say big black bucks at one point? Yeah, big black bucks. He says, you know. Referring from, to men. Yes, from, yeah. from when he was governor of California onward, there's plenty of tape of him just making not very coded racial appeals to the dangers of building up a welfare state. And he was not aware of the cheese surplus. He was not. He didn't have uh, whatever uh, code status. No, nobody Nobody walked into his office and whispered in his ear like, we've got 500 million extra pounds. As soon cheese. as you're president, they show you the alien autopsy tape <laughs> and they show you the cheese warehouse. The cheese problem was was um, was something that people in the FDA and people in the Carter administration were aware of, so much so that at one point, uh, one of the administrators of the program said that the probably the best thing we could do with this 500 million pounds of cheese is dump it in the ocean because it's <laughs> All starting to get moldy, and it's it costs it. It ends up costing more to refrigerate it and store it. Wow! Than it even than the cheese is worth. Yeah, energy is expensive. So Reagan gets elected, and he immediately starts slashing the welfare state. This is during the ketchup is a vegetable uh, years of the Reagan administration, and. There's a, a lot of pushback and a lot of criticism of his administration, and part of it, it starts to incorporate this narrative that we have all this cheese stored in American warehouses while, meanwhile, people are going hungry. Mm-hmm. How can you countenance this, uh, you who promises us greater efficiency? And so Reagan, in um, The Stroke of a Pen— Forms the Temporary Emergency Food Assistance Program, oh, or yeah. TFAP. <laughs> Urgh, you're faster than me. 
1981 starts a program where he says, we're going to get, we're going to give away this cheese. We've got too much cheese. We've got poor, poor people in America and healthful cheese coming their way. Here comes some healthy cheese. And all the States have to do is ask for it. And they, and we, we will deliver it unto them. The cheese doors will be open and here it comes. Ba, yep. ba, if you ba, say, ba, ba, we ba, would ba. like some cheese, you will receive 3 million pounds so of cheese, much cheese tomorrow. It's like when you were on a Nickelodeon show in the 80s and you said cheese and they dumped a bunch <laughs> of processed cheese on you. And it really is what happened to the United States. Did every state uh, sign up? Not uh, Well, uh, eventually a lot of states, I'm not sure if every state signed up for it. California was the first. And received, you know, 30 million pounds of cheese, cheese like in, a, please. in a wave. <laughs> and then other states realized, like, oh, we got to get in on this cheese thing. And so cheese became, and, and in particular, this kind of five-pound block of unsliced, processed cheese food became— How big is that, five pounds? Five-pound block of cheese. It's like, a, it's like a, what you would think of as a— I mean, it's bigger than a brick. It's, it's like a cinder block, right? Uh, it's smaller than a cinder block, bigger than a brick. Okay. So it's it's um, yeah, it's something. It's what it's bigger than a gold ingot. <laughs> it's smaller than a bread box. <laughs> it's uh, all, yeah, it's all, you could put it in a bread box, but you wouldn't want to. It's not refrigerated, right? It's smaller than a loaf of bread. Okay. Uh, this cheese food became a a, a way that everybody a way or a way. Oh, no. where's the bell god i gotta get that bell out of the box just every once in a while you you deserve Where did the bell one. even go i don't did know your daughter steal your bell she did every once in a while you deserve a ding and that was one um it was a moment in time where the farmers continued to receive their subsidy to produce but reagan as part of his program of in of, of of greater efficiency started to try to reduce those price supports which was in but, a, in that's, a way. that's to their credit because that's kind of his voters you know right. like he's not just sticking it to the inner cities yeah, he's, he he's was, actually principal in a principled way saying some of these agricultural things are out, out he was playing too. against type but he was he was doing that as a kind of i mean in, in the in the meantime he was also completely cutting gutting the welfare state sure and so a little tip of the hat he also like reduced little, farm subsidies. Little lipstick on the pig. But um but processed cheese and American cheese and what became known as government cheese was a thing that if you had food stamps, if you went to the food bank, you could get this five pound block of cheese and it wouldn't count against you. Right? It, it, like your food stamp money, you didn't have to use it to buy the cheese. You could just get unlimited cheese in addition to your your food maybe not unlimited you couldn't go in and get a 500 boxes of cheese but every if you want you know, to make like a snow fort out of every out of month or every week whenever you went to get your food a five pound block of cheese was included with your regular i wonder box. if you had to ask or if it just showed up Can i think it just you showed up i think you could say like no cheese for me thanks but if your family is skating by in reagan's uh increasingly threadbare world then you know any calories right. you just want for your kids right and and it's um and this is part of why it became a source of mockery is that this this was contemporaneous with the new era of food snobs that that prior either didn't exist or only lived in in Paris and New York mm-hmm. people who were prepared to spend exorbitant amounts of money on 
you know, tiny things that were, you know, uh, the mid 20th century is funny because when you think about what fancy restaurants had, it was, you know, they would have like three things. Pork chops. They'd have a steak or, yeah, exactly. In France, it Chicken was Chicken like cordon bleu. Pork chop with butter on it. Right. It, was, it wasn't like today where, you know, there's a, uh, this will have an avocado blackberry reduction right. spooned over the, you know. I mean, that, that, that The that complexity was, came later. That was, ev- that, that existed at some point, but it was not a middle class. Uh, middle sure. class did not have the, have access to fancy food. I don't think it was the aesthetic. Of of uh, of even higher end America. No, it, it it didn't exist, right? I mean, what what if you were a rich person in America in the sixties and seventies? What you did was you had steak for dinner five nights a week. You <laughs> Finally, didn't, you know, it, you didn't have anything uh, that was especially sophisticated. You just had more. Um, and in the eighties, you started to have a yuppie culture that was looking for fancy things. sushi and and uh, and that that was. You know, it coincided with the rise of this sort of mass-produced, processed, orange food-colored, and very pungent block of cheese provided by the government. Was this because that's humiliating? Anyway, really, was the spoilage an issue? Like, would you sometimes get not good cheese, or was it just that all the cheese was not good cheese? I mean, I think if they pulled a block of five-pound cheese out of a of a warehouse and it was green, I don't know what they did with it. Whether they whether they hooked it in a bin or whether they just scraped the green off. But that's the thing about cheese. It can go yeah. south and it's still cheese. It get, even gets more c- cheese. Cut the moldy part off. But government cheese became a, a, a um, what was it? It was a, it was a, a line in the sand, a demarcator. If you were above government cheese or below it and when you and you uh, might not even know about it if you're on the higher end, right? Like, well, you heard about it because it was a stand. It was a stand-in insult, yeah, right? It was just right. like, "How's your government cheese?" Uh, it became one of those ways that America decided it was going to. Um, Living in America at the time, did you know which of your friends had government cheese houses? Yeah, you you did. You you understood, I think, um, who. Who received assistance? Mm-hmm. Who was on assistance? I guess is what they what we said. Uh, it became a point of of uh, of pride or reverse snobbery. I mean, you hear government cheese referred to in rap lyrics a lot. Sure. You hear it. You hear people talk about it with a kind of nostalgia about their their uh, their eighties upbringing. Yeah, their rough upbringing. Yeah. Um, by the by, the early '90s, we had drawn down our surplus of cheese. Yeah, it worked. Such that we no longer there was no longer this five pound block of cheese waiting for everybody. Um, we can put we can put munitions back in those warehouses. That's that's right. Well, no, it was just that now that huts full of poor people now got uh, got truffles and uh, <laughs> and caviar in their boxes. That's what I hear. Everyone. That's what I hear from Sarah Palin. Uh, I. I dated a girl uh, in the early 90s who was on food stamps, and I ate her – I ate meals that she created out of her government assistance, and it was all – I mean, she made wonderful, nutritious meals from it, but she was on food stamps and also was a hippie. So she went <laughs> to the food bank and picked only the things that looked – you know, that looked like she could make a hippie meal out of it. We never, we never had government. She turned cheese. down the cheese. Yeah, she did. At the cashier, they're like trying to push it on her. But the the term government cheese sort of disappeared, I think, from the lexicon after 
the nineties, at least as a signifier of, of class and status. Uh, when I, when I used the term a couple of times this week with people a little younger than me, they kind of they had never really, I think they'd heard it in rap lyrics, but I, but right. I Chris but rock routines or something. There wasn't a, uh, there wasn't like that firsthand knowledge of, um, it didn't take them back. Well, it didn't take them back. And also, you know, the guilty pleasure that we felt about government cheese, which was it melts better. The nachos are better. I was just thinking a lot of this food snob is culture. Food snobbery is absolutely cultural relativism. Relativism. Like as a kid, I remember wanting my mom to buy me the bologna with the flecks of uh, like pickle, pickle and pimento in it. <laughs> and of course that's gross food. Yeah. But as a, as a kid, you would have to be told, hey, that's not cool to like that. Yeah. Like my eyes would light up at, at, at that kind of a stuff. For me, when I, when I started to feel obligated by my hippie girlfriends to not make grilled cheese with craft slices, I, 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 you know, I like mourned that even melting good old fashioned salty orange American cheese that sets us apart from our French and English neighbors. To this day, when my daughter orders a grilled cheese, she will expect cheddar. And if it's American cheese, she will turn up her little nose. And I don't think it's anything we taught her, but I think we raised her in a world where there was cheddar in the fridge because that's what upwardly mobile people have. Well... She may see uh, the world may change again because in the last couple of years, uh, one of the byproducts of the Trump administration's uh, trade war with China and other uh, global economies has been that the government has had to step in and start subsidizing, putting both price controls and subsidies in effect where – we used to export dairy, and now those markets are, are shrinking. Yeah, and huh. there was there's uh, the government has started buying cheese again, and <gasps> reopen the Quonset huts as of uh, as of just just now. There's a uh, there's a one and a half billion pound surplus of cheese building up in our American refrigerated warehouse network, and there's some suggestion that maybe. Uh, well, I mean, definitely we're going to – either we dump it in the ocean or it starts being free again. If uh, if you're in the future and our civilization ended at some point where we had a cheese surplus, you will know immediately where that place is. Just, just follow your nose. So future future Indiana Joneses will <laughs> will be, uh, you know, rolling in through caves just looking for that, that giant tower of cheese. And that concludes government cheese. Entry 541.1S1718, certificate number 24553, in the omnibus. Now, Futurelings, another thing we had a surplus of in our time was bad tweets and posts. And uh, as a result, uh, you could always find the omnibus's digital footprint at Omnibus Project on all of our, all of our generation's worst social media outlets. Uh, you could follow me at Twitter as at Ken Jennings. You could see John's delightful pictures of uh, neighborhood uh, signage and uh, graffiti and urban other urban wreckage uh, on Instagram as at John Roderick. So enroll in the Futurelings on Facebook if you want to discuss uh, raccoons or manhole covers or whatever they're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I, I feel like some people try to enroll and are mystified why they get turned down. We only get turned. You only only turn you down if you don't check the box that says I will abide by the rules of this fan page or something. So make sure you do that. Right. Oh yeah. You have to. You have to answer some questions. Or- questions three, and it doesn't matter what you say. I mean, it matters. I read them. I read them too, but if somebody put anything, I will accept them. If some, if in answer to the question, what kind of futureling are you, they say anything, you, you'll accept that? I will. Okay. All right. The only problem is if some people uh, do not answer the, do you agree to the group rules? Oh. And then, you know. Right. We can't have a bunch right. of libertarians in there. Don't agree <laughs> with the rules. I make my own rules. Listen, we're a socialist economy at the futureling. Here's what Ayn Rand would say about your dopey questions. <laughs> You know what, man? Ayn Rand does not uh, speak for all libertarians. So if you have tried to join the Facebook group and it was unsuccessful, don't get your feelings hurt. Just make sure you check the box that says, I agree to the group rules. It's not that hard. You know what? I'd just like to make a more sweeping and general statement. Don't get your feelings hurt. At all, ever. Just, I mean, try not to. What's the upside of it? Right? I mean, yeah, like I understand it happens sometimes occasionally, but don't like go, go looking for it. Definitely don't uh, uh, tell John about it on social media. That's not what he wants. No. Write to Ken about it at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. I will be uh, warm and woke and sensitive to all your concerns. Uh, If you want to send us government cheese, government cheese, government Government cheese, cheese. government cheese hates regular cheese. Uh, Actually, don't send us government cheese. No, no. You can send your grandmother's government cheese recipes. Exactly. We want all your. But Ken already has them all. <laughs> we, want your, we want your box of three by five cards with different cool based yeah. uh, cuisine. My copy of Joy of Cooking already has all that stuff, uh, all those magazine articles, tucked in the page. Please send us pictures of hams with uh, pineapple rings and cherries on them. That's what I want, and cloves stuck in them at, at intervals. Mm. Uh, send those to Omnibus Project, PO Box five five seven four four. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, Many of you have uh, chosen to support the Omnibus Project materially to make sure these entries continue. This is our 200th entry, John. Are you aware? Really? It is. Episode 200. Episode 200. Entry 200. And it feels like we've done so many of these, but we are not even a fraction of the world's knowledge is contained in, in this time capsule yet. That's right. Uh, so much more work to do. There is a lot more work to do. And we appreciate those of you who have uh, donated materially, fiscally, to make this possible. If you would like to continue the ongoing security of the Omnibus for another 200 shows or beyond, uh, you can do that by uh, contributing, uh, by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, your uh, financial generosity is what... Uh, keeps the show going. Well, futurelings, I assume that you are all um, a form of self-aware green bean casserole. Uh, <laughs> well, picturing, picturing you. Do they think with the French fried onions? <laughs> they do. Is that the brain of the they, of the pulsing mass? They're all just sitting in a in a convection oven somewhere. Uh, listening to this program and wondering, wondering about a time before the great Thanksgiving. Uh, from our vantage point in your distant past, distant, distant past, uh, we're, we've basically grown up in the interregnum between the two great eras of free cheese. But we have no idea how long this civilization will survive. 
We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, especially if that catastrophe is that we all drown in a cheese wave. Boy. Uh, but if the worst comes soon... I the cheese wave, I'll tell you that right, right now, now, right? If the worst comes soon, that, this that, recording... That would, be, that would not be Gouda. Mm. If the worst comes soon, this recording, <laughs> like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.